pastors. As I get there, as I leave, it's just too big. Or maybe this, I'm not even sure people know that I'm actually there. I've heard that before. And maybe even this one, I've been here a while, and the church, well, it's big enough. I really don't want it to get any bigger than this. This is the perfect size. This is just right. Now, this whole realm of thought and conversation that the church is too big, it really leads us to a great question. And here is that question. The question is this. Well, what, what is the right size for a church? You know, in God's creation, what he has made, what he has created, all these living things around us, um, living things, they have a birth and they grow and eventually they die. There's this life cycle. Everything that is living is in a sense growing. Even if you don't think you're growing, your body replicates all of your cells, does away with the old ones, and you have all new cells within a matter of years. So you are growing. Living things grow. And that's true when we talk about the church as well. Living things grow. If a church is not growing, the truth is that church is dying. But growing churches do create some problems and some challenges and some issues. So let me give you these two statements again, and they show us something. The bigger it gets, I don't even get to say anything to the pastors. That phrase, and here's another one, I'm not sure they even know that I'm here. Now, these two statements are expressing something very important and very real. We don't want to dismiss them. This is a very real concern. I believe we can summarize this by saying it is a need to know and to be known. And that is a very real God-given need. Now, let's look at this other statement. I have been here a while, and this church is big enough. I don't want it to grow any bigger. Now, I just want to say this. I, honestly, I have never heard anyone from Stuttgart Harvest Church say this. But I have heard it before about other churches. And, and again, I believe this is also a relational comment. Because the church can get so big that people feel like they don't know everyone. And that's a relational comment. But if someone did say this, or if someone thought this, again, we have to ask the question, okay, well, what is the right size then for a church? Because Jesus didn't tell us how big or how small a church should be. So here's what we do know Jesus said. Jesus did tell us to go everywhere to all the nations, everywhere, every place, and make disciples. So in other words, if there is a place in our region, in our surrounding counties, in our towns, in our communities, if there is any place in that area where there is a person who does not yet follow Jesus, then Jesus is saying, yeah, 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 go there. Yeah, work there, reach there, love there, love those people there, help them connect with Jesus, which also tells me this. As long as there is one person in any area, in any place of our region or world, but I'm speaking of our local church right now, 
as long as there's one person in our region that is not yet connected with Jesus, then we have a mandate that says the church cannot stop growing. Because Jesus has given us a mandate to help that person connect with Jesus. But that still leaves us. Even that, that does not do away with those questions. It still leaves us with a very real concern. And it's hidden in the statement that says, our church is big enough. And that concern is real. And that concern is relational. It is very real. So let's get maybe some help here. Let's get some insight regarding this. This whole idea of what church is and what Jesus said the church is. Because after all, it was His idea. It was God's plan, God's idea for church. So we're going to start this, uh, this discussion as we look at it in the book of Matthew. It's written by one of the disciples, the clo- one of the closest followers of Jesus. And as he got a little older in life, he sat down and he wrote, This is my experience with Jesus. This is, what, this is a glimpse of what I saw, what I experienced as I traveled and lived with Jesus. And here we're starting Matthew chapter 16, written by Matthew the disciple, and we're going to start with verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Now when Jesus is speaking here and he's calling himself, this was a term he used to describe himself, which basically means this, he's the Son of God and the Son of Man. And these two titles speak to the fact that Jesus is God who put on the flesh and the blood of man, came here as an infant, grew up, so son of God, son of man. And so Jesus is making it. Who do the people say that I am? That's what Jesus is asking. He goes on in verse 14. Well, they replied, some say you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah, or maybe one of the other many prophets, they say, as they answer Jesus. In other words, what the disciples are saying, Jesus, they're not sure who you are. I mean, they know that you are important. They know that something significant is happening, that God is up to something really big, but they're not exactly sure who you are. They just know it's important, it's of God, and it's really big. And then Jesus goes on in verse 15. He says, then Jesus asks them, but who do you say that I am? In other words, okay, disciples, you're following me, you're my closest follower, so now who do you, deep, 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 deep down in your soul, who do you say that I am? Who do you believe that I am. And as frequently happened, the first person to answer up was Simon Peter. In verse 16, Simon Peter answered and he said, Oh, that's easy. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus goes on and replies, You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any other human being and here's what Jesus is saying only God the Father 
could have settled this issue for you. Only God. Because without God confirming this fact for you, you would simply believe like all the others are believing, that God is up to something. It's really important and really big. But I don't know if it's John the Baptist coming back to life. I don't know if it's Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. I just know it's big. And Jesus is saying, "Mm -mm, the only way for you to know what you just said is for God the Father to have confirmed this fact that yes, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, this statement that Peter made, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, this statement is so huge, and it is so significant. And this was exactly the time for Jesus to say what he says next. And here's what he said in verse 18. Now, Jesus says, I say to you that you are Peter, which... His name means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Jesus said, I'm going to build my church. My church. And I'm going to build it. And there's nothing, not even death, not even the grave will stop it. An amazing statement that is huge, that is so significant what Jesus said right there. It was significant then, and it is still significant today. And it still today fills my heart with wonder and awe. But then I think a minute. Wait a minute, Jesus. You said Peter, the rock. Now, I've read the book, and what I've read so far and have seen so far from Peter, he is not, at this time in his life, a rock. And for years after this, not a rock. Are we talking about the same person? We know his story. Peter is not the rock. So if you want to say, Peter the hothead, oh, absolutely, that was Peter. If you want to see, say, uh, Peter, who was quick to act and slow to think, yeah, 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 that was Peter, a lot like me. If you want to say, Peter, the unstable, oh, yeah, I'm with you, Jesus. Peter, the unstable, absolutely. Peter, the emotional, oh, yeah, that was him, yes. Peter, the wishy-washy, oh, yeah, that's him. Oh, yes, all to that. But Peter, the rock? No way. Not Peter. You're not going to build much on Peter. A little wishy-washy, a little emotional. But Jesus seems to be saying something else. Jesus seems to be saying, don't forget, this is my church. I'm going to build it. And in doing so, I am going to work. I'm going to work with And I am going to direct imperfect, rash, emotional, flawed, unsteady, broken people in the process of building it. So if you're looking at Peter, 
and you're wondering, hmm, maybe this isn't going to work out so well. Then Jesus, I think, is reminding us we're looking at the wrong thing. What matters is not the strength and the endurance and the stability of the person making the confession. What matters is the truth of the confession. The truth that Jesus is the Messiah. That Jesus is the Son of the living God. All the power, all the foundation, all the strength involved is in the one whom is being confessed, Jesus. Not in the person making the confession. The strength of the foundation is not any remarkable quality of Peter. Not in any remarkable quality of anyone who has ever made that statement. The church's security and the church's survival does not rest on Peter, the person. It rests on the truth of what Peter said. The truth that Jesus is the Messiah. And there we have it in that statement that Jesus made. We have... Jesus announcing the coming start to this thing called church. And He announces the future of the church. Which leads us to the next question. What is a church? <laughs> what is a church? So let's talk about that. Before we do, I need to hit rewind. Let's talk about that, but let's go back quite a ways. Oops. And let's hit rewind. The New Testament that you have in your Bible, it was written in the language of Greek. That's what it was written in. Even for the Hebrews, even for the Jewish people, the Israelites that were living in that day in the first century as Jesus grew up, the language, the common language of the day was Greek. So they were not writing any longer in Hebrew. That was the Old Covenant. That was a long time ago. They were writing in the day in the language of the Greeks. And Jesus said, He said, I'm going to build something. And then the Greek word that Matthew, his disciple, as he was listening to this, the Greek word that Matthew wrote down was the word ecclesia. Ecclesia. And that word, it's spelled a couple different ways, that word ecclesia, that's an English spelling of a Greek word, and that word means gathering. And if you want to extrapolate that out just a little bit, it means the gathering of people. All right? Ecclesia. And Jesus said, I'm going to start. Upon this foundation, I am going to build my ecclesia. That's the word that he used. I'm going to build my ecclesia. Now, here is a huge point. Don't miss this. 
remember, lock this away in your mind, ecclesia, that word means I'm going to build my ecclesia. He's saying I'm going to build my gathering of people. Lock that away. Now, let's fast forward. We're going to fast forward about 300 years, roughly. And so, Jesus has already died. He rose again, and He left to be with the Father, and He sent His disciples out to start this thing called an ecclesia, a gathering of people. And for about 300 years after Jesus died, pretty much it was illegal And it became very quickly illegal, and it stayed that way for about 300 years. The first 300 years of, we have B.C., and then we have A.D. A.D. standing for in the year of our Lord. Those 300 years, basically, it was illegal to be a follower of Jesus. It was illegal to be a Christian. And so Christianity had been underground. And it was growing, though, like crazy from house to house, from town to town, village to village, country to country. It was growing underground like crazy. It was illegal to be a Christian. Now, around 315 A.D., so we had hit the fast forward from when Jesus said that statement, which was around-ish 30 A.D., to 315 A.D. This is what's going on in the world. The emperor of Rome, Constantine, finally made it legal to be a part of following Jesus. He made it legal. And then, shortly after, the emperor himself, Constantine, became a Christian. So not only was it now legal to be a Christian, but now the emperor himself, the leader of much of the world, was now a follower of Jesus. Since he became a Christ follower, suddenly it became the it thing. It was now the it thing, the end thing to do to be a Christian. And worship at this point changed from informal gatherings that were underground and that were from house to house, village to village, town to town. Those informal underground gatherings of people changed to more public meetings. And they became more formal because, hey, if the emperor is a Christian, we can do this thing right now. And it became more formal at that time. And they had formal places where they would worship. Almost 300 years after Jesus began to build his ecclesia, the idea now, 300 years later roughly, the idea began to change. From a gathering of people Now the idea began to change to a location. Now don't miss this. Ecclesia, which means a gathering of people, suddenly became thought of as a non-living location. A place. Now, in the 4th century which that's the 300s A.D., 
in the 4th century, the Romans had a word that they used, and it was a Latin word to describe a meeting place, and that word was basilica. So ecclesia means gathering, but the Romans had a word in Latin that they used, and it was basilica, and that means an official meeting place, a public building, an official meeting place. It is not a gathering of people, it is a place. That's what the Romans used, basilica, that word. Now, in the Germanic countries, which basically, that's north of Rome, When you go up out of Italy and north of Rome, those Germanic countries, they had their own word for that. And you're going to have to be patient here because I don't speak German. (laughs) But this word, there's the spelling of that word, and it's pronounced Kalika. That's the Germanic countries. That's how they describe this thing called uh, a a meeting place. And later, this next word, that's the more modern German word for that same. So the Kalika became this next word, which is Tekersha. I know it doesn't look like Tekersha, but that's the way it's pronounced, Tekersha. The word Tekersha means um, the house of the Lord. That's what that word means, Tekersha. This German word becomes our English word, church. That's where we get the word church. You see how it traces ecclesia, basilica, and then Tekersha. To our word, church. Um, Let me explain part of how that happened. There's two ways that we take foreign words and we bring them into English. One way is a translation. We take that foreign word and we find uh, an equivalent English word that means the same thing. And that's where we get ekklesia. That's the Greek word, but the equivalent word for that in English, one of them, there are many, but one of the words is gathering. Ecclesia, our English word then gathering, that's called a translation. There's another way to bring a word into, from a foreign word into our English language, and that's called a transliteration. Now this is kind of a transliteration. It's when you take a foreign word and then you give it, that foreign word, an English spelling and then you have created a new English word. For instance, to Kersha, we give it an English spelling into church. And if you listen to that word, to Kersha, you can hear some of that word church in there. They weren't going really, they were going phonetically more so than they were through direct spelling. And that's how we get a new, brand new word at that time. Tekersha becomes an English word church. Now, this is important to understand. That word did not, that word was created. It was added to our dictionary. It was added to our language. And therefore, it takes the same meaning as Tekersha, 
And now we have church. They have the same meaning because we've created a new word. So that's another way to take a word from a foreign language and bring it in. So we have translation, which is you bring in the word, and we find one in our language that means the same thing. Or we have transliteration, where you bring in the foreign word, and we take that word and create a new word, and we have a new word and a new definition in our language. That's where we get the word church. And I say all of that to say that's kind of how this happened. That's how the word church really, basically, in a, in a nutshell, how it landed in our English language. Now, you've got to go back some years here. The Catholic Church... Uh, let's see, we're going, that was, let, let's see, let's, let's forward up to um, around the 1500s, the 16th century, the 1500s. So that's quite a, quite a jump. That word church is very much a part of the vocabulary now. It's very much a part of the English speaking language now in the 1500s. The Catholic Church at this time kept the Bible not in the language that the people spoke. Uh, if you go to, uh, the, to, to uh, England in the 1500s, the Catholic Church in England kept using the Latin Bible. Almost nobody except the priest and a few very educated people spoke Latin. So almost nobody, nobody could read the Bible except the priest. In England, and for in the in, in the England area, the priests could, because they knew Latin. They had the Bible in Latin. So basically, the priests were the only ones who could read it. They were the only ones who could tell the people what it meant. And there was a lot of power in that, a lot of control in that. And that the Church in England, the Catholic Church in England, really liked that control. And along came, about this same time, this whole period called the Reformation. And please wake up at this point. If I have put you to sleep, please wake up. Take a big breath of oxygen. Get your brain cells working here. Listen to this. In the 1500s, almost nobody in England had access to the Bible. But along came these reformers. It's called the Reformation. And they wanted to reform how things were working. They were like, no, 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 no. People need to be able to read the Bible. They need the Bible, not in Latin. They don't speak Latin. They don't know Latin. They need it in their language so they can read it and they can understand it. So they can read it for themselves. Not cool, said the, the Catholic Church in England. Not cool at all. They didn't like that. They didn't want that. But one of the first English translations of the Bible was done by a guy named William Tyndale uh, in the 1500s. But the Catholic Church, they were fighting to keep control in England. They wanted control of Christianity. And now William Tyndale decided to make the Bible accessible to people who spoke English. And so that's what he did. So William Tyndale went and looked at the original language the Bible was written in. He looked at the Greek New Testament, looked at the Hebrew Scriptures, he looked at the Greek New Testament. Then he went over and he looked at the Latin New Testament, the book, uh, the, the Bible in Latin. It was the Vulgate. He looked at that. And then he went and also looked at the German translations. That's what he did. And so then he goes back to the Greek and he begins to translate the New Testament in English. 
And when he comes to this phrase where Jesus is saying, I am going to start, I'm going to build my ecclesia, and nothing, no powers are going to stop it. He said, I'm going to build my ecclesia. He got to that word, ecclesia, and he chose to translate that word. Remember, in translation, you take the word, then you find an English word that means the same thing, and you use that word. He translated that. You know what he used? He translated that to congregation. And what does congregation mean? It means basically a gathering of what? People. He translated that word into English. A gathering of people to congregation. Which meant... That a gathering of people is different than had he chose to use the once German, now English word, church. Because a church meant a place. Ecclesia, he chose congregation, which means a gathering of people. And this made... The Catholic Church in the 1500s in England, very, very angry. You see, it threatened their power. It threatened their control. Because they didn't want a gathering of people. Because they couldn't control the people. But they wanted a place, a church. Because they could control a church. They could control a place. So the Catholic Church in the 1500s in England, they arrested William Tyndale. They had him publicly strangled and they publicly burned his body and they sent his body all over the place because their control was threatened over a more accurate translated word. I guess the bottom line there is they didn't really want the people to know in the 1500s that Jesus was talking about an ecclesia, a gathering of people. They did not want the people to know that their version, the Catholic version of church in the 1500s was nothing like what Jesus was describing when he was talking about, I will build my ecclesia. And they didn't want the people to know. Now let's fast forward again to today. Most of your New Testament Bibles, most of that Bible is in English is word for word translated from the Greek to English. Meaning, word for word translated, they take the Greek word, they find an English word, they say they mean the same thing, so we use this word. Word for word translated. But not this word. The Greek word ekklesia, meaning gathering of people, instead of translating that to like what Tyndale said, congregation or people, a gathering of people, instead of translating that, they chose to take a German word transliterate it into English and create a new word, they chose to stick with the word church, which has a different meaning 
than the word ecclesia. They chose, instead of a gathering of people, they chose, and we're talking about the Bibles we're using today, our modern translations. Instead of translating into English, they chose that German word that was transliterated and it has a different meaning. Now here's why this is important. Because the meaning of what Jesus said has now been changed in our thinking. From a gathering of people to a place. And this is huge. The poor choice of words, church, became very accepted in conversation way back then. And it's obviously very accepted, still part of our conversation today. I use it all the time. But it is used in almost every English translation of the New Testament. I own somewhere around 26 English translations of the New Testament. And get this, of the 20, and I use, I, I own them, and I use 26 English translations in my studies. And get this, of those 26 English translations of the Bible, only three of those translations do not use the word church in this passage. Only three. Where it comes to ecclesia, they use the word church in 23 of those translations. 23 use the word church. Only three do not. And the three that do not, one, uh, two, two use the word um, uh, assembly, which what is an assembly? A gathering of people. Two use the word assembly. One uses the word Congregation. What is a congregation? A gathering of people. But all the other 23 of the ones I own use the word church. Now, there are many different assemblies of Christ followers all over Stuttgart. There are many different assemblies of Christ followers, gatherings of Christ followers all over the world. And they are all part of what Jesus calls the ecclesia. I am going to build my ecclesia, my gathering of people. Of all of those all over the world, and all throughout Stuttgart and Arkansas, our region, all of those places, none of them are a place. All of them are gatherings of people. And that is what Jesus said to Peter. After Jesus died and he rose again and then he sent his followers out to start this thing called an ecclesia, a gathering of people, a gathering of Christ followers. That's what happened. He sent them out and that's what they did. They began gatherings of people who were Christ followers all over the world. Now let's hit pause. We're about done. So today we say things like, I'm going to church. And that's a place, isn't it, when we say that? Me too, I've done it too. I'm going to church. We say things like, I went to church today. 
We went to that place, that building, whichever one it was. We went to that place. And even today, we have lost the idea of what Jesus predicted. We've lost the idea. So let's hit play because there's something we can do about it. Let's move forward. At Stuttgart Harvest Church, we wanted, along with many other churches in our area, I know, we wanted to capture the essence of what Jesus was talking about when he said, I want to start my ecclesia and I will build it and it's mine. We, we wanted to capture that essence. These rows that we are sitting in, in here, these rows are part of that experience of being part of an ecclesia, part of a gathering part of an assembly, part of a congregation. It's part of it, but it's not all of it. And if this is all you have experienced of Stuttgart Harvest Church, then I have to say this. You are missing most of what it means to be part of what Jesus said and he called an ecclesia, which is a gathering of people. You see, the church is not about rows. The church is about a growing, gathering of people, a nurturing group of people, a caring group of people, a loving group of people. And when you talk about the primary activity of a local gathering of Christ followers, of what our New Testament's called the church, when you talk about what they are called to do, the activity of the church in the first century, when you look at what they were commanded to do? Basically, we could say this. They were commanded to one another, one another. That's what Jesus, and, and, and through the writings of the, of the New Testament letters, that's what God commands us to do. We want to, he wants us to one another, one another. When you look at the New Testament, the New Testament writers assume that we will uh, experience together communion. But it does not tell us how often or when. It doesn't give us clear cut guidelines on that. The, the New Testament writers assume that we would sit in rows and, and, and that we would be a part of learning. They, they assume that we would sing, but they don't tell us what to sing, and they don't tell us what words to use, and they don't tell us what style to use. So it's not real clear. But they assume we would sing. They also assume that, that, you know, that there would be teaching like we teach, that there would be teaching, and there would be learning. We know that Paul taught so long, one time, they were in a second-story house, in the second story, and there was a young man sitting in the window. Paul taught so long, way into the evening, past midnight, he was still going. Aren't you glad my name's not Paul? It's bad enough, right? It's not Paul. He, he taught so long that that young man fell asleep in the window and fell out of the second-story window, hit the ground, and he died. Now, I know I put a lot of you to sleep. Please don't listen to Facebook Live while you drive. <laughs> I put a lot of you to sleep, but I've never killed anybody yet, right? So we're doing pretty good. At least Andy Stanley says we need to follow the example of Paul. We need to just stop short of people dying. So we're going to keep it on this side of the timeline. We have a great deal. We, we have almost no information of what 
the church is supposed to do in this environment. But we have a great deal of information about everything else the church is supposed to do, what they're commanded to do. And the New Testament letters are full of that. And they are almost all relational. We are told to one another, one another. We are told that we are to be humble toward one another, to serve one another, to pray for one another, to admit our failures to one another, to encourage one another, to care for one another, to forgive one another. We are told to be patient with one another and to be kind and compassionate toward one another, to carry one another's burdens, to restore one another when somebody falls and they're hurt, to accept one another, to live in harmony with one another, to be devoted to one another, be at peace with one another. And we are told this one big one that really captures almost all of that, we are to love one another. You see, when we come into this room, into the rows, this is the simple part. I mean, this is the easy part. When we come into this room, we can walk in here, we can find a seat and sit down in here, and then we can walk out when it's done, and we can go home. And never, ever, ever have done any of the one another's that we are commanded to do. In this environment on Sundays, we really can only do just very few, very little, just a very tiny, small part of what the church is supposed to do. You see, when we come into this room, we're experiencing a vertical relationship. It's between me and it's between God when we come into this room, right? It's very personal, intimate between you, between God. God is speaking to your heart as we read his word. God is speaking to you. You and God, it is vertical when we walk into this room. And because of that, we can have a faulty understanding of what it really means to be a part of this thing called a church. This thing that Jesus said, I am going to build my ecclesia. I am going to start it. We have a faulty understanding, thinking that being a part of a church means we're working on this vertical relationship between me and God. So we come into this room and we go vertical. We go to that place. <laughs> That place that we go called the church, that place, that's where we work on our vertical relationship between us and God. We call it a church, and we think that in doing so, that we have accomplished a big part of what God has called us to do. As he said, I'm going to go build my church. Well, yeah, I went. I went on Sunday. I really worked on that. But Jesus was not talking about rows. He was talking about circles, really, about gatherings of people. Listen to what Jesus says as John, another follower of Jesus, he wrote down these words of Jesus. Here's what he said in John chapter 13, verse 35. Jesus said, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Notice that John didn't say, if you show up and sit in the rows, you're going to prove to the world that you're following me. 
If you have a quiet time at your house, work on that vertical relationship, you're going to prove to the world that you are following me. If you pray before you eat at a restaurant, you're going to prove to the world that you are following me. Nope, he didn't say that. If you listen to Caleb, he might have said that. If you listen to Caleb, you're going to prove to the world that you're following me. If you take communion, you're going to prove to the world that you're following me. If you sing worship songs, you're going to prove to the world that you're following me. If you carry your Bible to work or school, if you carry your Bible anywhere, you're going to prove to the world that you worship me. If you put a Christian bumper sticker on your car or a fish symbol, anything says anything about Jesus, you're going to prove to the world that you're following me. But he did not say that. He said, if you love those people. The love you express for the people in your gathering is going to prove to the rest of the world that you are my disciple. That's what he said. So you know how the people at your work and how the people in your family and how the people at your school and how the people in your neighborhood are going to know that you're a real follower of Jesus. Here it is. If you love those people who make up this gathering called the church... If you love them. Do you know at this time when Jesus said that statement? This was so revolutionary at the time. Because when Jesus said this statement, here's how they knew if you were following someone. If you were a follower of the God Mars, they would know if you were a follower of Mars. Because how? You would show up at the temple and leave your sacrifices. They would know if you were a follower of the god Venus or Jupiter. Because why? You would show up at their temple at that place and you would leave a sacrifice. And Jesus said, nope, that's not how we're going to do it. We're going to be different. It's not going to be walking through those doors that lets people know you're my disciple. It's going to be your love, your one another love for all of those people, part of my gathering that I'm building. It's how you treat one another. This is why we talk about this so many times during the year. You see, you can't really one another one another on Sunday here. There are some great people who when, when you roll in, in in the mornings on Sunday who have already prepared the cafe and who are trying to one another you in a subtle way as they have stuff for you there, drinks and, and food as you come in. And there's some other people that were just trying to give you just a glimpse of some one anothering as you came through the door and they were smiling. And those who are writing your name tags, they're trying to give you a taste of it. And as you walk down the hall and get your worship guide, they're trying to give you a taste. And they're trying to give your kids a taste right now. In fact, just a moment ago, we heard that over there. They're getting some good one another and over there. I love it when we hear them. We have some people working with your children right now who are trying to give them some of that one another love. But you can't really one another them back really, in here, in this environment on Sunday, because this environment is not really designed for that. When you show up on the weekend, we can't even scratch the surface of what it means to be part of God's gathering of people, His ecclesia, the church. So, 
what we do on the weekend, on Sunday, it's important. It's part of it. It's an important part. We need to be a part of this environment, be a part of this aspect. But let's be honest. Most of us uh, give ourselves credit. <laughs> we give our, ourselves credit for being a part of the church if we sit in a row and we work on our vertical relationship between us and God. But God said that, that's just a small part of what it means. That's just a little part. And if that's all you're doing, you're missing the big part of what it means to be part of a local gathering of Christ's followers. We're missing the point of His plan. See, we think it's all about this. God growing me and my relationship with Him and it growing deeper and it getting strong. We think of it in terms of this. And we give ourselves credit for being here. And the worst that Harley does, or if Cole's teaching, the worst that Cole does, the worst that one of us does, and the longer I teach, the more you have to endure on a Sunday, then the more credit we get. We get extra credit if Harley goes long. I had to endure it. I made it. But God says, that's not the way you show me. That you love me. That's not the way you show the world that, that you're my disciple, my follower. That's, and, and ultimately, that's not how you love me, God says. You love me, God says, by loving them. It's not vertical, it's horizontal. You love God by loving his children, by loving those folks that are part of his gathering. Now, Stuttgart Harvest Church, we are all about moving people out of rows and into circles. And in a, in a couple of weeks, we're going to have a thing called Group Link on Sunday morning, and we have extra stuff and extra food and stuff, and we're going to have that on a Sunday morning. But you don't even have to wait till then to be a part. You could sign up to be a part of a circle today and we call it a small group and I know you have a busy spring coming up I know you do and I know you have activities with your family that's going to pull you in a hundred different directions but listen to me as I say this grandparents and parents listen to me as I say this your schedule if you allow it will push you away from what I'm talking about today it will send you in all the other directions if you allow it. And there will come the day in your life when you think, oh, Jesus, I need my child involved. I need my teenager involved. They're running away. They're gone. I don't know what's going on. They're off the rails. I need them involved. There's going to be a time as a parent and a grandparent that you say, Oh, my young adult. They're starting their own family, but their life is off the rails and you will want them involved. And here's what I say right now. is the time that your child, no matter how small, your child or your student or your young adult needs to see you making it a priority to be part of what God is 
doing in a small group where we one another, one another. And if you allow the schedules to push you out now, there will come the day that you say, oh my word. I wish I could go back and show my child a new priority. And you have that ability now. Will you be a part of that environment where we are doing our best to one another, one another? Will you be a part? Your child needs you to be a part. Your young adult needs you to be a part. Your family needs you to be a part. Will you please consider signing up for a small group on your connection card before you place it in the bucket today? Let's pray. God, I ask that you would help us to retrain our minds so that we can see the church as you do. That it's not a place. It is a gathering of people. God, help us to retrain our minds to love you, God, by loving others. And when we are loving more, we will prove to the world that we belong to you. God, help us as we learn to love one another. May we not be satisfied with checking a box that says we were part of a church because we came to a row. But God, give us a hunger to also step into this thing that could make us nervous, this thing called a group. And God, help us to keep practicing the one another's with each other. Give us the courage to take this step as part of you, Jesus, building what you said you were going to build, and that is your ecclesia, your gathering of people. In the name of Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.